Hello, and welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions, a podcast for creative folks about living and working with more intention, curiosity, and joy. I'm your host, Lisa Congdon. Friends, I'm so excited to introduce you to my latest sponsor, Storyblocks. Storyblocks is a stock footage company who exists to help you bring all your stories to life without sacrificing your vision due to time or budget or resources. Every creator who does any kind of video production should have a Storyblocks membership, and here's why. They are changing the face of stock footage with more diverse and inclusive content in their library to help creators continue to tell their unique and authentic stories. Their restock program is their commitment to increase representation in stock media by hiring creators from marginalized communities to create content that is more reflective of the diverse world we live in. They are also committed to access by making their footage affordable, offering unlimited downloads, a royalty-free demand-driven library, and enterprise licensing. Focused on speed, diversity, and accessibility, I highly recommend checking them out at storyblocks.com slash That's storyblocks.com slash Friends, I am so excited today to introduce you to one of my dear friends, Jonathan Fields. Jonathan is an award-winning author, Webby-nominated producer, business innovator, and host of one of the world's top podcasts, Good Life Project. In addition to writing award-winning and best-selling books like How to Live a Good Life and one of my personal favorites, Uncertainty, Turning Fear and Doubt into Fuel for Brilliance, Jonathan has founded several companies with a focus on maximizing human potential. The most recent is Spark Endeavors, where he has developed the world's first set of archetypes focused on purpose, engagement, and flow. These archetypes are called Sparkotypes, and the Sparkotype tool, which has you discover your very own Sparkotype, has been used by over 400,000 individuals and organizations which has not only generated a rapidly growing global data set, but has led to the kind of self-knowledge that helps us transform how we work, lead, and live. Jonathan draws not just from his own experience, but also the wisdom of the many global visionaries he's interviewed. Jonathan's unique insights and solutions inspire people to put what they learn to action. I'm going to talk to him today about his latest book, Sparked. I have known Jonathan for a decade, and fun fact, he's interviewed me three times for his podcast, but this is my very first time interviewing him, and I am so excited to share our conversation with you. Welcome, Jonathan. Jonathan, it's so, so great to have you here today. It's funny, when we first got on Zoom this morning, I said, well, where are you? Because sometimes you're in New York and sometimes you're in Boulder. And you said, I'm in Portland. And then you laughed. And I thought that was so funny because I'm in Portland. And so we might as well be together today in Portland. I love that you think you're here. You know, (laughs) like psychically, I'm right in the room hanging out with you. Um, 
And yeah. and just so my mind and my heart are there, but my body happens to be somewhere else. <laughs> yes. So about three years ago, we met for breakfast at a little diner in Portland. And my wife Clay came along, who you also know. And you were telling me about a book you'd started working on based on years of research and experimentation that you'd been doing and data points that you generated by, I think, like half a million people in conversations with luminaries. We'll talk about your podcast in a little bit. And you were about to hole up for a few years to work on the book. And by the way, this was before we knew a pandemic was coming, right? So you and I parted ways. I think I saw you one more time when I was in New York in November of the following year, and we recorded a podcast episode for your podcast, The Good Life Project, in your Manhattan apartment. And then three months later, the world as we knew it sort of stopped. And here we are nearly two years later from the last time I saw you in person. So I really want to talk about your new book, Sparked. I finished it, and I'm so excited about it. In fact, the minute I finished it, I came home and I said to Clay, oh my God, you have to read this. You have to do the assessment. It's so revelatory. I'm a total nerd for self-knowledge and personality archetypes Mm -hmm. and everything you do, Jonathan, and we'll get there. But for a moment, take me from that moment in the cafe to then crawling into that book writing cave to the release of the book, because so much has happened over the course of the past few years. Um, yeah. yeah, I can't, I can't believe it's been three years. Um, yeah. So when we were hanging out in that diner in Portland, I was probably talking about a book, but the book wasn't a reality at that point. I was like deep into this body of work. I've been developing these archetypes and I'm like this deep fascination of what is the impulse for work that makes people come alive? And we had built an assessment and all these people. And so I was sitting there and I think I was probably sharing all the data with you. And like, you know, like things were popping off in my head. And I knew that I was, you know, this was going to be a book at some point, but I wasn't actually working on the book at that point, but we were probably talking about it. The way the book came to be actually is a little bit of um pandemic weirdness slash magic. So so the book was in my mind back then. And the way that you sell a book, you know, a, a nonfiction book, you know this better than anyone having written a bazillion of them at this point, you know, you sell, although yours are a little, di- a little different than mine, like I sell the proposal. So I think I was probably working on the book proposal when we talked and j- just starting into that process. And then I gave it to my agent and he's like, you know, we're seeing weird things in the market. And this was pre-pandemic. He's like, I'm just, there's something weird happening. Let's just sit on it. We literally sat on it for about six months is my memory. And I just kept deepening into the research and doing the work. And then in February of 2020, I, you know, actually probably January, late January, February, I, I emailed them. I was like, hey, what are you seeing? Does it feel like it's a good time to go and shop this project now? He's like, yeah, it looks like the market is really like coming back to where it needs to be. He sends out the proposals to the publishers. There's, there's thankfully like very blessed. There was a lot of immediate interest the first week of March in New York City, which is where I was living at the time, we set up all of these meetings with publishers. And as we go to meetings, on a Monday, we're hugging hello. On a Tuesday, we're shaking hands. On a Wednesday, we're elbow bumping. By Friday, we're kind of bowing uncomfortably from across the room. It was a very, very weird time. You know, like New York was the time where everything was happening there. Um, the next week, the book actually goes to auction and New York City shuts down. And 
I'm, it's, it's such a, a bizarre, strange time for me because I'm like living in New York City at a time where it was horrifying to be living in New York City. It was the epicenter at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was where it was, it was absolutely terrifying to leave your apartment and we hadn't like it hit really, really, really fast. And then all of a sudden your eyes were open. You're like, oh, wow. Um, and then at, at the exact same time, this thing that is so close to my heart that I've been working on for years is is just stepping out into the world and is being embraced by the world of publishing, which doesn't always happen. And, you know, like people are literally saying, I want it. And it was, so it was such a really strange few weeks in my life to be living in this sort of like dual state. So we ended up, you know, with a, a wonderful publisher who it's been amazing to work with. And then, and then New York shuts down. A week later, our daughter who was in college comes back to us because they shut down and tell all the kids to leave in, in 48 hours. And we hunker down. We basically bunker in New York City through one of the most horrendous experiences. But the whole time... I have this thing that I'm working on to focus on. And I have other things and other projects and produce a podcast and all this. But it was it was really interesting for me because I'm I'm working on a book that fundamentally is about hope and possibility at a time where, especially in the early days, I didn't know if those words would exist in our experience in the near future. And I'm like, is this is anyone gonna care about what I'm thinking about or writing about what I'm pouring out of my heart. And I'm a maker. Like I, this is what I do. You know, I, I have to make ideas manifest. It's what breathes me. And so it was just this really complicated fabric, like a tapestry of emotion and experience and creative output. And what, one of the interesting things, it's funny, I was just talking about this with somebody else is that what I came to learn about myself and over the last couple of years have come to learn about so many others is that I realized that when I invest effort that is really closely aligned with that impulse, which like I said, for me is, is the making impulse. Not only do I feel alive and good and meaning and purpose and all this stuff, but when I do it in times of struggle and anxiety and uncertainty and disruption, it has this really weird side effect, which I never saw coming, which is I feel much more tethered to the ground. I feel much more grounded because I'm doing the work that feels so natural to me to be doing. So it gave me a certain amount of, I don't know if grace is the right word because I don't think I've, <laughs> grace in the context of the last 18 months is a really bizarre thing to talk about, but it allowed me to touch stone in a way that I think had I not been so intensely focused on this thing, it would have been a lot harder to me. That's beautiful. And I wonder, too, did you begin to realize that as you were working on this book and as people were stuck at home, not at their jobs or not in their offices, maybe losing their jobs, did it occur to you then that the work you were doing would actually resonate because so many people were in this place of questioning, like, what am I really doing with my life? Because sometimes it's these times of stress or being forced to sort of walk away from your daily routine that makes you question everything. Did you, did you have a sense of this work I'm doing is going to be really useful for people? Yeah. You know, in the beginning, I hoped it would be, it would be useful for people just in general, you know, because up until this time, 
so many people have still been stepping into the world of work and doing things that don't align well with who they are and experiencing, you know, really high levels of sustained discontent and all the stuff that flows from that. So I kind of sense, you know, like it would be relevant on that level. But then, yeah, as I started, as, as things started to carry on, I started to realize, oh, like this is sending people into a level of existential questioning that we have not seen in generations. And yeah, you know, then I started to realize, I started to say to myself, I felt a weird different sense of responsibility in the writing process. And, and I did sense that people would be in this space. I didn't know if they would still be there by the time the book came out, because nobody knew how long this thing was going to last. But what I knew is that as I was writing, a lot of people, millions and millions and millions of people were stepping into the space of deep and profound questioning. And what I noticed also was that it was being shared publicly, you know, where a lot of people would go there, I think, when they hit a certain point in their lives, but they would kind of hide it or just talk to their therapist about it or talk to their you know, like intimate partner about it. But they wouldn't share it a whole lot because there was still a certain amount of fear that we, they'd be viewed from the outside in as like, oh, you should just be happy for what you have. And like, why are you questioning these things? And, you know, like just, but the level of deep questioning has been so normalized now. It's happening at so much scale that what I see happening is people are talking about it. People are much more open about it. And people are really starting the, the, this process of self-discovery and experimentation in a much more open way. And like you said, sometimes that's somebody who's fortunate and, and, and is fully employed. Sometimes it's people who've lost jobs. Sometimes it's people who are out of work and trying to figure what is the next thing for me. But there's, there's been this reckoning and, and a questioning that says, well, okay, so yes, work, you know, has to sustain me financially. You know, it needs to give me a sense of security, but there's got to be something more. There's just got to be something more, you know, for that thing that I will do for, for most of the waking hours for the rest of my life. I could not have seen that coming, but I'm also, I'm excited to be offering something that I hope will help at a particular moment in time where I feel like a window has been opened to reclaim work that is going to close. You know, not that we can't do it, but it won't be as easy to do from a social dynamics and a cultural level months or years from now. And, and I hope people stay in that space, that liminal space long enough to really do the discovery to let them not just step back into something, that, you know, is a different office, different boss, different job, different industry, but fundamentally recreating the same thing that they left and then, you know, ending up 18 months later from now with that same stifling experience of work. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because you, you know, I think a lot of people are thinking about the question that you start your book with, which I'll, I'll share in a moment, but you've been thinking about, you know, a lot of people are thinking about it now because you know, the world is as we know, it has changed forever. And I do agree that there is we're in this moment of the ability to reclaim, but it won't always exist. And we are sort of in this moment where I think it's like, there's an opportunity to take advantage. But you were thinking about this question long before the rest of us in some ways. So you start your book with this question. And your new book is called Sparked which we all have asked and attempted to answer at one point or another, sometimes over and over and over, 
again, what should I do with my life? So can you talk about how you came to understand that this was the question nagging at people and that you should do something to help people answer it? Yeah, that is, um, it's been an evolutionary process, <laughs> you know, because I think I've circled around it for a really long time because it's such a big question. But what I think I realized about the question too is when we ask that question, most of us are actually not asking a question just broadly. What we're really asking is, how do I devote myself to some kind of work that will give me the feeling of meaningfulness and purpose and, and drop into that space of flow and feel like all of me is being brought to the task? And there's a broader sense of purpose. But we don't realize that actually we're asking it in the context of work. And, and when I say work, by the way, I define that pretty broadly. So for some people, work may be the full-time job you show up to get paid for. Some people, work may be volunteerism. It may be a role as a caretaker or a partner in life. It may be a parent. It may be whatever it may be. It's that thing that you devote a substantial amount of effort to for the vast majority of your days. And when we ask that question, what should I do with my life? What we're really asking is how do I find, do, or create work that gives me that feeling of being alive, like I'm doing the thing that I'm here to do. And for me, that question has been a personal question for my entire adult life. And I have, if you look at my path over the last 30 years, I've changed, you know, not just jobs, but careers multiple times. And it was me going through a process of experimenting and questioning without even realizing I was doing that in the beginning. You know, I started out, you know, in a very past life. And in, in, when I was a kid, I was an entrepreneur and a lemonade stand kid, but then I kind of left that behind. And then I have this aberrant sort of window as a lawyer, a big firm lawyer in New York city. And then I, I jettison that. And then I drop into the world of entrepreneurship and well-being and human potential and health and fitness and yoga, opening a number of companies in that space, and then teaching every modality that I can wrap my head around. But the whole thing, when I look at the through line, looking back through that is me I kept trying on different suits and that suit could have literally looked like a $2,000 business suit, or it could have looked like a janky old pair of like tights and beat up running shoes and a t-shirt that I'd owned for 15 years. And then, you know, I kept showing up and saying, what's the way that I can actually exert myself that feels really good. And then once I started to figure that out, I said, okay, so how can I do this in a way that will actually support myself if it's even possible? Or is this just the thing that I'm going to do? on the side in all of my free time and, and be okay with that blend. So the, the question has been with me on a really, really personal level for a long time. And I think that's why nearly 10 years ago, you know, we, we launched this good life project, which again, it, it, the, the reason the word project is in that is because from the very beginning, this was an experiment for me. This is a project and I have no idea what shape it's going to take or how long it's going to last. And I want to give myself the freedom to just keep it as this open-ended experiment. And it was in part, I, it was the maker impulse in me building like, ooh, new company, new brand, new media. I get to make all this cool stuff. But then the stuff that I was focusing on was finding people who to me seemed to actually have figured out their own answer to that question, sitting down with them and asking them everything about like how they actually got to their answer to the question. And in the early days, it was more broadly about how do you live a good life? 
But what I realize is so many of the conversations end up wrapping around to what to the work that a person is doing in the world. And I just decided to to really go deeper into that one part of the question. And that's sort of, you know, that's the thing that has has consumed a lot of my energy happily for a lot of years now. That's so cool. That was so, a really long answer. So. No, no, I love long answers. You, you're probably most well known for your podcast, the the Good Life. Is it is the podcast called also called the Good Life Project? Yeah, just Good yeah, Life Project. The, yeah, yeah, and the Good Life Project, so folks know, kind of encompasses a lot more than just the podcast. And I'll link to Jonathan's website so you can check it all out, including his new book. And I'm proud to say I've been on your podcast three times. I was actually one of your and, you know, kind of early interviewees in 2012, when you used to do stuff on video, you would sit yeah. down, you would travel and sit down with people. We would go on location with like, you know, like a little crew and all the cameras. And you were, you were one of the very, like the, the early, early, early ones. <laughs> I know people are like, I saw you. And I was, and I was like, oh my God, that's 10 years old. Like that was kind of me at the beginning. I was thinking last night, I should go back and watch that. I think it might be really revelatory. And on that podcast, you interview folks about, you know, living fully engaged, fiercely connected and purpose drenched life. That's are your words. And I just, I, I love that, you know, I've been able to come back, you know, two more times and continue to talk about how that's changing for me and what I'm learning. And I'm sure I'm not the only person who, you know, has been able to do that. You then wrote the forward to my book, Art Inc., where you talk about growing up the child of an artist and also your sort of like initial inkling that you were an entrepreneur. And I attended your summer camp, which was previously part of um, the Good Life Project. And we've continued a friendship ever since. So just so folks know kind of like how Jonathan and I became friends and have known each other for almost 10 years. So in the book, there is this assessment. And it doesn't take very long. You take it online. I actually just took it last week. And so I was curious as we kind of, as I lead into talking more about like what's in the book, which is to me just this assessment and the results and then reading about the results was so revelatory to me, especially on my anti-sparkotype, which we'll get to. But how did you develop this assessment? You know, talk about how you developed it and, you know, as the designer of the tool, like how you measured whether or not this was the right assessment to get at the question that you were trying to answer. Yeah, it's a great question. And and the, the tool itself continues to evolve. I mean, we actually released a 2.0 version of it. The original one actually didn't have that. You just mentioned this this metric called the anti-sparkotype. But we continue to, to learn and grow and build the algorithm so we can figure out more things and help people in different ways. But you know, the early way in was really me saying, okay, so... I have this question. I've been talking to people for years and I have I have a pretty big data set through conversations, through diving into a lot of academic research, um, looking at a lot of spiritual paths and philosophical paths. But I didn't see really simple body of work and tool or set of tools that really focused on this question of work. What is the work that makes me come alive? And I began to wonder, is it because it's just kind of impossible to create something that distills something which is valuable? And I didn't know the answer to that question, but I started thinking to myself, I wonder if there is some sort of identifiable, mappable set of pretty universal impulses for effort that exists underneath 
all of these, you know, like the 7.8 billion different ways that we see people actually showing up in the world. Like, is there a much, much, much smaller set of impulses underneath that? And, and could you figure them out and map them? So I started looking at nearly every job that I could find and saying, what's underneath that? What's underneath that over and over and over and over and bringing in a lot of research about different things. And I landed at the set of 10 impulses as I kept distilling down and down and down and down. I really actually don't like the fact that it's 10 because it feels too slick for me. <laughs> it's like <laughs> Too bad it's not seven or No, 13. it's like the marker in me is like, <laughs> come on, find one more, dude. Um, but that's where we are now. And of course, the scientist side of me like always holds myself open to the fact that, that we may develop research that shows there's one more or one less or something like that. But But that's where we are right now. And then I also had to really understand, you know, I, I, I use this phrase, like, what is the, your unique impulse for work that makes you come alive? What are we even talking about when I use the phrase come alive, right? Because it's a kind of a nebulous word. So I had to ask myself, well, what, what are the components that go into that? And for me and for other people who I've had the opportunity to sit down, I started to think, okay, so we all want to do work that gives us a sense of meaningfulness, what we're doing matters and, and who we are and what we're up to matters through this work. We love to be able to just become absorbed in a state of flow. Artists and athletes tend to access this, I would say, probably more readily than a lot of other people. But when you're in that place, you know, you become utterly absorbed, time fugues, you're hyper-generative, hyper-cognitive, hyper-creative. It's kind of this magical state. And so that's, you know, the second component the third one is, does it energize and excite you? Like, do you wake up in the morning and even if it's really hard, you're like, yeah, give me more of that, you know? And even if it takes a lot out of you, it still kind of gives you energy. And the fourth piece of it is, does it allow you to feel like you are expressing the greatest amount of your potential, however you define that in what you're doing? Like you're not holding back or feeling stifled. And the last element, the fifth one, is a sense of purpose. Does it give you a sense of purpose on two levels, both immediately, just like, okay, I know I have a really clear idea of what I'm working towards and that thing is meaningful to me, but then zooming the lens out more broadly, do I have a sense of purpose in life? Like this thing that I'm working towards actually is more broadly aligned to who I am and what I'm here to do. And once I looked at, I sort of identified those five components of this state I call coming alive or being sparked, there's actually a ton of research and data on all of those five different domains. And I'm a total nerd also. So I've spent decades deconstructing that data and amassing giant files. So I started really trying to figure out, okay, can we build a tool that would serve two purposes? One, it would build on all of the early questioning that I've been doing and research that I've been doing personally and, and experimenting I've been doing and gathering of information and start to test these ideas and either validate or invalidate them on a much larger scale. And at the same time, could that tool, if it was in fact valid, help a lot of people fairly quickly discover what this impulse is for them and then be just so much better equipped to understand how to move into the world, what to say yes or no to. So we spent about a year in 2018 building this assessment and developing it, trying to figure out what is the language, what are the prompts that would get people to an answer that was real and valuable. And it took about a year and we, were, we keep, kept putting smaller groups of beta and then larger groups of people through the beta and, until finally the answers were pretty solid, pretty robust. And people kept telling us this feels really, really valid to me. 
Like this both feels right and it's valuable. It's, it's actually giving me information that will help me move through the world, that will help me understand how to work differently. And then we, at the end of 2018, we kind of opened it up to everybody. And what happened next kind of blew everybody away. I mean, you know, as we sit here, we're well over 500,000 people who've completed the assessment. 25 million plus data points, probably you know a lot higher than that at this point. So much just astonishing feedback and stories and use cases. And, and I've had the opportunity now to, to take this body of work as it develops more and work with leadership teams and organizations to startup founders to see how it applies in all these different contexts. And that's, that's sort of the backstory of how it all evolved. And it, it just keeps continuing to evolve because to me, you know, this is, this is a dynamic body of work. And the more I learn, you know, right now the data set is what it is, but I envision a time where five years from now, you know, it's 50 times bigger than that. And I can't, can't even imagine the insights that we'll be able to gather and share at that point. I love that story. The, this whole idea of being sparked resonates with me so much. When I was researching my own book, Finder Artistic Voice, I read a couple of books that talk about this moment when that happens for folks, when they first remember being inspired by something creative. And in, in my case, you know, I'm talking about my audience is mostly creative folks. And it was referred to at least in at least one of the books as the spark. And then I began to refer to it as that in my own book, because really that it's like this moment, you know, when you realize that, and in some ways it's hard to describe, as you mentioned, you know, you've come up with all of these like components, which are domains or whatever, which makes sense to me. But for me, it's just this feeling yeah, right totally. inside. So I took the assessment and I found out no surprises here. <laughs> I'm a maker. And my shadow side is sage, which is also not surprising to me because it pretty much sums up my whole life and especially my work. But the thing that was the most illuminating to me was the notion of the anti-spark type. And guess what that was? Okay, let me think about this. Um, knowing you, I'm going to guess essentialist. No. Okay. What do you got? Performer. Interesting. Actually, that makes that makes sense to me. What? What's? And I'm sure that essentialist is probably <laughs> down there, and that other things were up there also. But boy, oh boy, am I running up against that right now in so many ways. And so to have it confirmed, this was actually the most important. And you say this somewhere towards the end of the book. You know that oftentimes people's anti-sparkotype is the most essential bit of information that they glean from this, because I can already see how I can use it to help guide my journey and make decisions. Because I, I had never considered that this was actually something that was sort of inherently difficult for me. Um, I've always been fighting it. So for example, I get asked to speak all the time, right? And it's this my career demands my sparkotype in a way, right? I've become well-known in the last few years. I get asked to speak all the time and it is the most nerve-wracking part of what I do. I'm pretty good at it. I'm learning to be better at it, but it is the thing that consumes the most of my energy and that I sort of dread the most. Also, you know, I wrote this whole 
piece that went kind of viral on Instagram the other day about Instagram's new kind of pro video algorithm. And I really actually, this was before I took the assessment, <laughs> like the day before, I was talking about how I'm not, I don't have any interest in being an entertainer. And that I was going to continue to approach Instagram in the same way I'd always had, but I was also going to be looking for other ways to connect with my audience since the algorithm was changing and blah, blah, blah. And this post went viral. So obviously a lot of people are feeling the same way. But what was so interesting to me is that it was the first time I ever said out loud, like, I'm not, I, I'm not, I don't have any interest in being an entertainer. Hmm. Um, I, I'm really interested in sharing knowledge, which is part of getting on stage and speaking and part of showing up every day on Instagram. But the performative part of it is really stressful for me and actually zaps me of energy. And that was just like, it was like, permission granted. I, I work with a with a life coach and I have a meeting with her soon. So we meet like four hours a month and I cannot wait to tell her this because it's like she's really working with me to let go of the things that are zapping me of energy or to uh you know delegate them when when possible. And it's almost like, oh I have permission now. <laughs> Not that I didn't have permission before, but sometimes it's that realization that gives us permission, right? Yeah, I mean, so there's so many things in there uh, to potentially unpack, but I, I love what you're sharing. Yeah, the you mentioned your primary is the maker, which is, so your primary spark type is your strongest impulse for effort, and and your shadow in, in in the spark type world is not like the Jungian shadow, like your opposite. It's actually kind of like you can look at it either either as your runner up or. There's a more nuanced relationship very often, which is it's the thing that you do to help you do the work of your primary better. And then your anti-sparkotype is generally, it's the, the kind of work that's, it's the heaviest lift. It requires the greatest amount of motivation from the outside in and often the greatest amount of recovery. And just like what you were saying is you can build skills around it. You can be really good at it. You can build competence around it. And that makes it a lot better. It, it allows you to experience it with more, with more grace, with a bit more ease, but it will never feel, it will never, it will always very likely tip on the side of, of more emptying from an energetic standpoint than filling, even if you're really, really good at it. And even if you get, you know, the, the accolades that come from, wow, that was an amazing talk that you gave on stage. And everyone's like, this is incredible. You like that. And it's awesome. And it feels really good. But at the end of the day, the fundamental act, like that fundamental thing still kind of takes a lot out of you. And that's just the way you are. But I want to bring up one other thing, which actually, it's funny, I'm probably going to write a bit more about this because we had just been developing the work around the anti-sparkotypes when we had to close the book. And I've learned so much more about it in a lot more nuanced ways lately. And, and that's this, and it's in the context of it, is while the work may be harder, while it may take a lot more out of us and it may require a greater recovery, some people may also have a really strong value set around that particular type of work that says, but this is still really important for me to do. So a great example of this is, let's say your anti-sparkotype is, um, one of the sparkotypes is the advocate, you know, and the advocate is the impulse is to champion, to help shine the light on ideas, ideals, individuals, communities that really matter, that, that they feel are not getting their due. So you may actually take the assessment or you may kind of innately know, 
well, this is the type of work. It really, it's a very heavy lift for me. It takes a lot out of me. It requires a lot of recovery, but at the same time, hold the value that says, but this is really important to me. It's important to the world. You know, just because it's hard for me doesn't mean that I get to opt out of it. You know, because that value says this still really matters to me. But what it tells you, even in that context, is I'm going to step into this because I have to because of my values. But I'm going to also need to do things that keep refilling my well, yet that really double down on my own self-care, my own well-being, knowing that it's going to take a lot out of me. And I have to do things that will allow me to be okay emotionally and physically and spiritually while I'm doing it. So the cool thing about you and the performer is that you, you kind of could, because it's not necessarily, you know, the thing that you have to do and because you have that sage impulse too to teach, but you don't necessarily need to do it as a, as a performer. You can do it in so many different ways. You do have this ability to potentially largely opt out of a lot of it. Whereas other folks, it's not quite so easy. And it's, it's been really interesting for me to start to really understand as I, as I talk to so many more people and really go deeper into that side of it, a much more nuanced take on it. Yeah, it's so interesting because I think I, I actually enjoy aspects of performing when I get really comfortable and I'm good at it. I probably will continue to take advantage of some of these opportunities because as you mentioned, like it aligns a lot with my values around community and showing up in public spaces and like being part of something and whether that's sharing my knowledge on stage or being on a panel or whatever, I can't always do it in a classroom of grad students, you know, where I don't have to perform where I'm just literally teaching. Although sometimes I think a lot of teachers would argue, classroom teachers would argue that <laughs> they're performing half the time mm -hmm. just to keep their students engaged. But what I can do and what I hear you saying is that I can go into it with a lot more self-love and like, kind of like, oh, Lisa, this isn't, this is makes you uncomfortable, not because you're bad at it, not because there's something wrong with you, because I think we have a lot of shoulds in our head. Like, yeah. I should like this. I should be grateful that I, you know, can do it. It's just mind over matter. Like, it's just a confidence issue. Actually, no, maybe it's just something that makes me uncomfortable and I've been doing it for years and it doesn't get any less uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to do it. I just need to go into it with, you know, this sense of kind of like wrapping myself in a blanket and saying, you know, just kind of self-care and self-love, you know, and not beat myself up for not being as good at it or not enjoying it as much as some of my colleagues. Yeah. Or, or just for the fact that like, after you do it, you realize that, you know, like you, it's taken a lot out of you. And just that you need to, you know, like that, that, that will like very likely keep happening. <laughs> Even if you get super skilled at it and really good at it, which I know you are, I've seen you on stage a number of times and you're awesome. And yet there's something about it that may still kind of require that you then take some time to set aside and just replenish, you know, and that's okay. So you just kind of know that that has to be built in to the way that you move into the experience now. I think for a lot of people taking the assessment and then getting the results is going to be very affirming for them. Oh, this makes sense. And that's the way, you know, and that, and that of course makes sense because, you know, it's like you're, you've designed a tool that is for the most part designs to sort of show you or illuminate for you what 
you probably already know about yourself, even if you're not in that line of work. But I imagine in a certain number of cases, there's some misalignment, especially, you know, anti-sparkotype aside, let's talk about your actual sparkotype, right? And so what it what happens when folks get the results and are sort of surprised by them? You recommend in your book not to blow everything up, meaning don't don't make any big disruptive changes. So say more about how folks can look at the results that might resonate, but also be a realization that literally nothing in their work life is aligned with this goal. Like how to, how to take all of yeah. that and process it. And it's, and yeah, the, the, as you noted there, I literally started the book um, before you even get into anything with a really short personal note that says, you know, you may discover some things here that are, are going to make you realize that you know, that, that will give you the impulse to just blow everything up and start over. I was like, please don't do that. It's just, it's not the right move for most people. For some it may be, but it's, it's the action of last resort rather than first resort. And so, so if you're, if you're that person and you know, you discover, okay, so these are the things that I now know about me and yet it resonates really powerfully. And now I'm looking at the work that I'm doing and realizing, oh, like th- there really is are very few ways for me to express these things, these impulses for work in the thing that I'm doing. What do I do? You know, there tends to be two responses. One is either you feel trapped and you just kind of give up and say, but I, I have a value of financial security for my family and this is giving it to me. And it's real world. Like I'm, I'm very much like, let's use these tools in the real world, right? People have very different levels of of opportunity and constraint and privilege and lack of privilege and agency and lack of agency. And being able to actually you know, like honor those values or those circumstances is really important. So there's either this feeling of, I, I can't do anything about this because it's paying the rent. So there's a, you know, a sense of like, well, this is a little bit futile or people just want to blow everything up and go start over because they feel like they have the opportunity to. And what I really suggest is a middle path is first say, okay, acknowledge this is my reality. And it may be, may not be what I want it to be, um, or it may really be awesome. But if it's not what you want it to be, take a look at what you are doing now. Whether it's something you have control over, whether you're you know, a creator or an artist and you actually can reimagine a lot of things by making different choices, or whether you have a job, you know, whether you're a designer working at an agency or an organization, and you have to work within a larger structure or system or team, take a look at what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. Look on three levels. Look at the tasks and processes that you engage in on a granular level every day. Look at the tools that you use to do these things. And then look more broadly at like what are the topics and areas and fields that I'm actually currently engaging in. And then make a similar list for the things that would actually allow you to really express your sparkotype. And then what you'll start to see very often is, oh, there's actually this opportunity over here to do more of this thing too. You'll start to see all sorts of channels and ways that you can actually engage in more tasks and processes that would let you express your sparkotype or use different tools in different ways and different contexts or on different projects that would let it out a little bit more or, you know, like explore different topics or projects or you know, uh, uh, products or services that you're working on or developing that would really let it out more. And what, what you find is that all of a sudden when you say, okay, 
let me really understand what this impulse is. And then you start to very intentionally and regularly look for opportunities to let it out, to express it. And what you're doing, you start to see them all over the place in ways that you had no idea they existed. Or what you'll start to see is, oh, well, there's not this opportunity right now, but I can see that it's needed in what I'm doing. Maybe not even on my team, but on this other team, or maybe it's on my team, but I don't, I'm not assigned that thing. And then you start to say, well, well, can I actually do that? Even if it's not part of the job description, you know, but if you see like, well, this will allow me to do a thing that will make me come more fully alive. And I just, and, and, and there's a way to do it. You know, there's an opportunity and a need for it. I'm just going to go do it. Sometimes you ask permission. Sometimes you just kind of start doing it. What happens is it really changes the quality of how you experience what you thought was an unchangeable thing. Very often what you thought was just a trap or something that you thought the only way to get what you need was, was going to be to leave it, to blow things up and just start fresh. And you start to realize, no, actually I can reimagine a lot of what I'm doing in the space that I'm already in to make it a whole lot better. Now, will it get you all the way there? Maybe, maybe not. Like I said, you know, like realist, but chances are it'll get you a whole lot closer and you'll feel a whole lot better and a whole lot more alive. And then maybe enough so that that's actually enough for you blended with the value of financial security. You're like, yeah, you know, like this blend feels really good. Or maybe it gets you a lot closer, but you're like, and now I'm going to start some really cool side projects, whether it's a side hustle and it makes you money or not. You know, it's just, there are things that you can do on the side that are beautiful ways to invest energy in getting more of that feeling. So you create this blend where the whole blend actually helps you come alive. So it's about being creative and really understanding how do I identify or even create these new channels to let this thing that's inside of me that has to get out to feel okay, actually get out. Yeah. I love that sort of permission to not, I feel like so many kind of self-help books or these assessments that are out in the world, um, you discover this thing about yourself and then the, you know, it's like we get into the same trope of like, now you must go do that thing. And I think a lot of times those things don't work because it's just not reality or it's reality for people who have the means and the privilege and not for everybody else. And I know that, you know, I'm talk about my wife for a second, but she has traditionally had a job where she's always sort of similarly trying to find out ways to feel alive in her work. But what she realized a few years ago, and I actually think this was essentially through going to your summer camp two years in a row, was this idea of really figuring out who she was and what brought her joy and then pursuing that also outside of work, that that's really what made her life feel full. And to this day, that is sort of, and it's not all the stuff you would imagine, you know, she's not out like with a side business. She actually just likes to be domestic and garden and clean the house and do the laundry and ride her bike and have this very kind of peaceful, grounded life here in Portland, which is actually a little bit in conflict with my, you know, desire to, I'm a, a much more a person who likes to travel and likes new experiences and gets bored by routine. And so we've also in our relationship had to figure out how we can each have our both work and outside of work needs met 
and also kind of enjoy time together, which is a whole other kind of piece of, of work. But I think it's been so helpful for her to understand that it's okay for her to do this job that she goes to every day and enjoys, but isn't, I think she's was spending a lot of time comparing herself to me because mm. I am one of those lucky people who I'm a maker. I make a good income from making and creating and teaching and all of those things that I love and that fill me. And I managed, I haven't always done this, but I've, I've kind of figured out what fed me pretty, you know, relatively early on. I, I pursued it. I got through the, the hard parts of it. I did also start slow and simple. And I think for a lot of people, they think, oh, you know, Lisa, you're living the dream, right? You're, you are the model of, you know, somebody who's sort of makes a living doing what she loves and does it in this purpose-filled way and influences all of these people to also, you know, live their lives in a in more joyful, uh, meaningful way. And wow. And yeah, that feels really good. But I also think, you know, for Clay, it was realizing that her life was no less important than mine, no less impactful. And she didn't need to create work for herself that was so, I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like she gave herself permission to just like be Clay and do it in Clay's way. And like ever since that happened, our relationship and everything has just been so much stronger. Yeah. And that, that totally makes sense to me. Um, it's, it's funny, as you were sharing that, a conversation I recently had on Good Life Project immediately came to mind. It was with Elaine Aaron, who did all the really early research on what is now known as, as highly sensitive people. And as soon as I was exposed to her research, I was like, ooh, like th- I think that's me. But then in the conversation, she shared, you know, you can be high, a highly sensitive person and also be what she described as high sensation, meaning like you, you are also seeking of experiences that are really intense, high sensation experiences. And it almost seems like that shouldn't work together. Like, but if you're really high, like if you're sensitive to stuff, like should you then be high sensation seeking? And she said, it, it, it's actually fairly, and I was like, that's me. You know, like, so I'm an introvert, I'm quieter, I'm definitely sensitive to a lot of different louder environments or fast processing and stuff like this. And still, I will find myself alone on a mountain riding a mountain bike along the edge of a cliff, you know, and I'm like, okay, I get it. (laughs) And it sounds like that's part of what you're talking about. Also, part of it is the underlying impulse, but also, you know, knowing Clay also, there's, I think there's probably a really substantial difference in sort of like the, the sensation of experiences that you both need to be okay. Yeah. And honoring that in each other and allowing, you know, her to be more quiet and, and for me to be sort of out in the world, you know, consuming experiences. And doing insane gravel rides. <laughs> yeah. Doing insane gravel rides. Um, although recently we were in Wyoming and Idaho in the high desert and I, there were people mountain biking everywhere and think that she we didn't go but we were road cycling next to some people who were mountain biking and they she was like okay I gotta try this you know so (laughs) I think she's like slowly getting more comfortable with the idea of doing something more dangerous on her bike which for me was like yeah totally I'll go you know try this thing that's really dangerous and hard yeah so 
Okay, one last question for you. We are sort of living in this time right now that feels heavy. You know, there's a global pandemic, which we thought would be over by now. It's just getting worse. There are really tenuous situations around the world and all kinds of inequities and all kinds of suffering. And for those of us who are sensitive, oftentimes that makes us feel a sense of guilt about pursuing a good life or pursuing joy or pursuing meaning, even though in my mind, I'm often motivated by other people's suffering because um, what's that, what's the archetype that? The nurturer. Yeah. The nurturer or the advocate. Yep. I'm pretty um, high on both of those, I think as well. And, but I think for a lot of people, this idea of finding joy and finding meaning feels frivolous. And so can you dispel some advice about that? Like, why is now just as an important time as any for people to, whether it's your book or any other process that leads us to a deeper understanding of ourselves and what drives us so that we can make better decisions about how to live our lives to be more joyful? Like, how do we do that work when things feel so hard? That is a big thorny complex question, but but a couple of thoughts around it because it's such an interesting and important question too, especially at this moment in time. Um, one is you know in the context of of like okay, so who am I to, to go out there and like pursue living a quote good life at this particular moment in time where people are just trying to get through each day? And the invitation there, I think, for me is well. A good life doesn't mean like, yay, happy peppy, everything's awesome, Pollyanna, like let me ignore, let me opt out of the reality of what's happening around me. A good life really to me is to be deeply connected to the truth of who you are and what's happening around you and deeply connected to experiences and relationships around you that that are meaningful and nourishing. And that means sometimes that we're, we're not happy. That means sometimes suffering. That means sometimes letting all of it in what what researchers would call like an emo diverse experience like go through all of the things a good life is not trying to be happy all the time it's actually it's trying to be open honest and letting it all in and feeling it all and developing the skills and practices to allow you to respond in a constructive way when it feels right and also to just sit with certain things and to allow other things to move through you and to, to create the capacity and the skills and the tools for that. So, you know, to me, pursuing a good life at this particular moment in time actually is, is really healthy and constructive if you look at it that way and not look at it as sort of like the good life that's depicted in movies. Right, and, that you will arrive at, yeah. Right, you know, it's not about, you know, like aspiring to like a Lamborghini at this particular moment in time, <laughs> you know. Not, not that I have anything against Lamborghinis, but just in terms of some of the, the, the indicia of what sometimes people will look at as having, quote, made it. My lens on the good life isn't the, the same thing as having, quote, made it. It's actually more about presence and meaning and relationships and love. And in terms of experiencing moments of joy along the way, even in the face of profound suffering, I look at it as a coping mechanism to a certain extent. You know, if, if you can somehow find ways to access, to tap into, to see even the momentary experience 
of joy, you know, like whether you're really suffering or really in pain or really struggling and you happen to see some beautiful act happen out of the corner of your eye that takes three seconds, but you actually allow yourself to witness it and to be present to it, to know that that is still going on in the context of a broader fabric of unease, it gives you like just a little bit more of a hit to move through that moment or that, that minute or that hour or that day or that week. And those things are happening around us. And sometimes we're the ones who are part of them. Sometimes we initiate them. Sometimes we are on the receiving end of them. Sometimes we're just there to witness them and be moved by them if we allow ourselves to be present to what's actually happening around us. So it's not about, in my mind, fabricating those things. It's being present to them and knowing that you can live in this bizarre dual state of being present to the truth of what's going on, very often hard truths, and at the same time, hold yourself open to the possibility of experiencing spaciousness, experiencing joy, experiencing connection. That doesn't mean it's easy, but the alternative is to reject all of those things and live purely 100% of your experience in the pain. And that doesn't seem like the better option if in fact you have the ability to invite both in. Oh, thank you. That was so beautiful. And I couldn't agree with you more. I folks am going to link to all things Jonathan in the show notes. So you can check out his work and his books and all of his podcast episodes with amazing, amazing, diverse, array of really inspiring folks. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today and chatting with me about your new project. It's been my absolute pleasure. It is so, it, at, at first it was a little bit weird to be on the other side of the mic <laughs> with you. <laughs> and also we've been friends for so long. It's like you never quite know, but it's been such a joy and really an honor and also an honor to be one of the sort of like your earlier guests yes. on this amazing, amazing show. Yes. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Sue. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Editing of this podcast by the amazing Gabe Garber. Thanks to Nick Lambert for the original music and to my amazing team at the CoLoop Podcast Network. Please subscribe to the Lisa Congdon Sessions on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy what you hear, leave me a review. You can follow me on social media at Lisa Congdon and at the Lisa Congdon Sessions. I hope you'll join me for future episodes. Have a magical day, everyone.